Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. And now it's a great pleasure to have Eric Barker on the podcast. Barker is the creator of the blog aptly titled Barking Up the Wrong Tree, which presents science-backed answers and expert insight on how to be awesome at life. His work has been mentioned in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic Monthly, Time Magazine, The Week, and Business Insider. He is a former Hollywood screenwriter, having worked on projects for Walt Disney Pictures, 20th Century Fox, and Revolution Studios. He's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Woohoo! And holds, <laughs> sorry, and holds an MBA from Boston College and a Master of Fine Arts from UCLA. His latest book is Barking Up the Wrong Tree, The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Success is Mostly Wrong. Hey, thanks so much for chatting with me today, Eric. Oh, it's great to be talking to you, Scott. Great to be talking to you, too. Uh, I feel like I've known you from afar for a while, so it's nice to finally uh, chat with you. Absolutely. Fascinating, fascinating book. I'm a scientist myself, but, you know, I learned a lot. I always learn a lot from your blogs and thought we could discuss a lot of the contents of it, maybe leave some of the goodies out so people will still buy the book. That's fantastic. That sounds like a great balance. Great. So what's something I like about this? You review multiple sides of every story. There are multiple sides to every story. That's the truth of the world. Yeah. And you acknowledge that. And then you, I think we probably can bond over our mutual love of paradoxes. I could sense reading this book that you get excited by things that I get excited about too. You know, like the question, like, do nice people finish last? Or you say nice guys, but you can be, they could apply yeah. to the women as well, right? So yeah, of course. do nice people finish last or first? And all you could find, depending on your dependent measure, 
You know, yeah. if your dependent measure is cheating, <laughs> well, you know, it's yeah. it's almost like a tautology. Like mm-hmm. to win at cheating, you have to be bad in a way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you want to have really satisfying, intimate relationships, at some point you have to be good. So I just like how you go through all these nuances. So let's go through these various topics today, and then yeah, we'll talk about these various sides of the story. So one topic you talk about is in terms of success, perhaps having flaws can be conducive. But not only having flaws, I love the extreme you go through. Your your stories are very well crafted, by the way. I thought you you did a brilliant job with this really, truly brilliant job with the stories and matching them up. Can you tell the story about this person who literally went crazy and how maybe that was not detrimental to creativity? Yeah, uh, Yuri Robich. There's the Race Across America, which is Outside Magazine called it the most extreme performance event out there where basically in approximately around 10 days or so, these people ride literally from Atlantic City on bicycles to San Diego that cross the entire United States. And once the clock starts, it does not stop. So anytime you stop to sleep, to eat, to go to the bathroom, anything, you know, that's counting against you. People are passing you. And it's insane. These people like destroy themselves literally doing this. Two people have actually died doing this. And there's one guy, he has now since passed away, but Yuri Robich, who's won it multiple times. And his secret isn't, well, you know, oh, he's got grit or, you know, oh, he's an incredible super athlete. His secret is that he actually loses his mind. Dan Coyle wrote a fantastic piece for the New York Times describing it. And Yuri Robich's superpower is he loses his mind. He actually goes crazy. He gets into fistfights with mailboxes. He sees things, but what this allows him to do is actually disassociate from the pain and not experience the problems that a lot of people do in this extremely grueling event. So something that most of us would consider a negative in this very weird scenario becomes a positive. For sure. And then you you kind of ask this question, is playing it safe or doing what we're told the path to success? I think this relates to this, right? Like not necessarily always playing it safe is going to get you success, depending on how you define success. But yeah, so that's a super interesting example. And and I think it's a common theme throughout your whole book, right, about uh, various different kinds of, quote, flaws. But you're saying they're not really necessarily flaws in that context. You know, once we get to the extremes, uh, you start to see that, you know, if what might be, say, stubbornness in a lot of situations, if you're in an extremely difficult scenario where 99.9% of people giving up, extreme stubbornness might be required or any sane person would give up and quit. So you have these kind of things that exist at the edge of the bell curve, you know, and they seem like they're in the left-hand tail, but they're also in the right-hand tail, depending upon the context. And that's why when we attempt to limit, you know, and just get the people in the middle, we get rid of these extreme qualities which sometimes are negatives, but sometimes can be positive, depending upon the scenario specifically. I think it's a good point. I'm also noticing a trend in writing about this topic, various writers, that it almost seems these days in order to actually be successful in life, you almost have to be at those extremes. Like, is there any hope anymore for people in the middle? (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I think there is, you know, in terms of, you know, you you can still get your K. Anders Erickson 10,000 hours of, of expertise. If you devote that amount of time to it, you know, but in extreme scenarios, sometimes extreme qualities are are necessary or they grant you an advantage. 
And also, let's not forget, times change, contexts change. And, you know, once again, those negatives that became positives could become negatives again, depending upon, you know, how things shift in the future. Good point. It's always about the context, isn't it? So related to this, what are intensifiers? That's the first time I heard of that term. That's a term used by a Gotham Akunda at Harvard Business School who was talking about different kinds of leaders. And I remember when back when I was reading the research on leadership, I found it confusing because there was some research that said leaders don't matter. You got a, got a team of A players, they'll self-organize, they'll do well. You don't need a figurehead. And there was other research that said leaders are enormously impactful, that they, they energize people, unite them, create morale. And it was completely contradictory. And what Gotham found in his research is that both of those things are true, that it's bimodal. There's two types of leaders. There's filtered leaders. So if you look at like the CEO of GE, they're going to be highly vetted, extremely vetted, have gone, had a long career, and the organization is going to be weeding out people. And so the men and women that are finally up for the top job uh, have been so thoroughly filtered that as to be indistinguishable. So if you hire one or the other, they're probably going to do the same things and make very similar decisions. And in that way, there isn't a difference. On the other hand, you have unfiltered leaders. So entrepreneurs who go through no vetting process, or if a vice president steps to the presidency, you know, due to some crazy scenario, that person wasn't vetted for that role and they may not do what is expected. So what happens is you get unfiltered leaders do wilder, crazier things. Sometimes those things are great. Abraham Lincoln ended slavery and he won the election by a surprising, crazy confluence of events. So intensifiers are those unique categories, like Yuri Rovich is losing his mind when he rides a bicycle. Those are those outlier qualities, which in some situations can be a negative, in some situations can be a positive. And so Gotham talked about how those often distinguish your unfiltered leaders, those intensifiers, because those people with those extreme qualities probably would have been vetted out by a filtering system had they gone through it, like trying to be CEO of GE or something. Wow. That's really cool that you just discovered that literature and then you wrote about it. That's awesome. And I think that very much applies to in education as well with students, right? And all of our filtering mechanisms. We, we have so many. We have so many that are standardized, right? Yeah. Absolutely. That's my own pet peeve. It's like, <laughs> it drives me crazy. Yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of implications for that as well. So what can we learn from Kung Fu masters about being a flaky quitter? <laughs> Matt Polly was a uh, undergrad student at Princeton, and he had always been the schoolyard punching bag. And he uh, you know, beat up as a kid, and he decided that he was going to drop out of Princeton, move to the Shaolin Temple, and master kung fu. And of course, his parents were furious. This was, you know, back in the early '90s, you know, before the internet, before Yelp reviews of Shaolin monasteries. And so he did this, and it was this crazy little experiment, kind of like Peter Sims talks about little bets. Yeah. And it was this experiment, and it was a crazy, wild, exciting, exciting thing. It was a lot of fun. And most people would say, oh, that's just you know, youthful indulgence, being nuts. But it ended up, ended up creating his career as a writer. His first book, American Shaolin, was about him dropping out of Princeton to go to China, and it created this whole career. So rather than following the normal you know, undergrad experience by doing something wild and crazy, by trying a little bet, he opened up a whole new door for himself and created his career. So while 
you know, applying yourself, grit, being consistent, playing by the rules has definite clear benefits. Trying things that you know you might quit can actually produce, you know, great little benefits if you balance that out with your dedicated pursuits as well. Yeah. You know, all these things are interconnected. There is a, um, I was wondering, like, how's he going to put this all together? How's he going to put this? Because you're like, well, well, you're just integrating like maybe 400,000 studies, you know, it's like, <laughs> because in science, we don't, most scientists don't really try to take that much of a bird's eye view, right? Like they're, yeah. so they're too busy doing, it's hard to do just one study and it, it, you figured it out like a, it's a big jigsaw puzzle. Do you think you, you put the pieces in a way that tells a coherent story about when is it good to be grit and when is it good to quit? When is it good to be a nice person? When is it good to kind of not be exploited? When is it, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think like you have made sense of this world? I mean, that's something I would love to see a researcher like yourself do a, do a thorough examination <laughs> of and really get a control group and, and we'll see what happens. But I definitely think that you can see, you know, when you look at like, you know, Angela Duckworth, who I know you work with, you know, her research on grit. And then you look at like Peter Sims work on, on little bets and you realize that you know, while the first impulse might be to put them at opposite extremes, the truth is you can balance the two. You can take a certain amount of your day and dedicate it to really hard work, deliberate practice and move the needle forward in terms of what's important to you. But that doesn't exclude trying new things to always make sure that you're, you're growing, you're learning. And, you know, uh, with little bets, you can use like a venture capital model where you try 10 things, you know, seven of them aren't going to work, two of them might be okay, and one's going to be the next Google or Facebook. And to balance those two, you know, you don't have to go to either extreme, you can take, you know, 90% of your time dedicated to what's to what you want to double down on, and then take 10% and try new things to make sure that you're not kind of, you know, just doing the same stuff and never learning and growing. Cool. Yeah. And it also, I get a message from your book, a couple things. One thing is that life is not fair. You know, like <laughs> we, we kind of need, we should just accept that. Like if we're going I, I to. I think I'm adding that to the subtitle. I, I think <laughs> that's life a, is not fair. That, wouldn't that make a good book title though? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It has to be like the surprising reason why your life is not fair. Okay. Like you're not, you're not allowed these days in popular books. You're not allowed to just say something. It has to be, you have to like explicitly say to the reader, it's going to be surprising what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that you added your, the surprising signs of why your life is yeah, fair. It has to be personal. Most lives are fair, but yours, not so much. I'm sorry. That's your kind of the exception here. Don't count exactly. on it. I'm glad you picked up. I'm glad you picked up on that. <laughs> you know, it's like my friend Robert Kurzban wrote a book, Why Everyone Else is a Hypocrite. And the word else is in parentheses. And so uh, it's kind of like that. You know what I mean? Like, like we, we all think that we're the only one whose life isn't fair. There's another psych book, what was called, uh, was it Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me? Exactly. <laughs> that, yeah, that's by uh, Aaron, Elliot Aronson, who's actually uh, going to be on the podcast later this year. Oh, fantastic. I, I recorded a two-part series with him already. I'm so excited to put that out. Very yeah. cool. You're very well read. I mean, I got to say, like, maybe I could back up a second and we get to know you yeah. a little bit better. Is your full-time job the blog? Yeah, the blog and for the and for the past two years writing the book. And you know, the book is basically Mythbusters for Success. You know, I take the old maxims we all grew up with of nice guys finish last. It's not what you know, it's who you know. You know, quitters never win, winners never quit. And 
kind of look at the research, look what the experts say and see if they're true, if they're not true, uh, when they're true. And because the issue for me was, you know, I, I came out of Penn with a degree in philosophy, which uh, did not prepare me for the typical work world. And I had a very unconventional career. I was a screenwriter in Hollywood for a, for a decade. I worked for Disney. I worked for Fox. I worked in video games. And it didn't seem to me like those rules always applied so well. And I didn't, you know, nice guys, sometimes nice guys, you know, do terrible. Sometimes they do great. It, I found exceptions to all of these little maxims. And I wanted to know what are the real rules of success, or at least what did the research say that really would have made a difference? Because I was as curious as anybody else. And I wanted to see what does the legitimate research and experts have to say? Oh, absolutely. And there are no rules. in si- I mean, there are very few, few rules in science. There are some there are some in behavioral genetics. <laughs> where in the field of behavioral genetics, we're starting to actually figure out some rules that seem to hold. But a lot of these things you're talking about, really, in this book, you're talking about correlations. Yeah, and absolutely. there's lots of variation and, and context that matter as well. So putting that nuance there was huge. So that's great. You're kind of living a dream in a lot of ways. Uh, it's great. It's one of those, but I, I, tend toward, I tend towards workaholism. So when you don't have any restrictions on you, you tend to do too much which is good in terms of output, but sometimes I have to sort of restrain myself because there's nobody else to do it. Yeah, but it's it, it's exciting to be able to um, kind of be on your own clock and have your own autonomy is really wonderful. We had a little interlude to get to know more about you. Let's jump back into some more of these interesting things. So how long could I be Batman? <laughs> yes, this this actually has been researched. And you know, I, I think it relates to an issue some people deal with in terms of perfectionism, you know, and the issue of try, trying little bits of trying different things. Sometimes we're a little too focused on being perfect. And that limits us because we don't want to try anything where we might want to fail. And so I think it's an E. Paul Zare, I think, did this research where he tried to look at comparable careers to uh, Batman. And he looked at he looked at boxers, mixed martial arts athletes and running backs. And what you saw was that how long, because the thing about Batman is Batman, you know, having a record of 30 and one doesn't work for Batman because he, he can never lose. He has to be perfect. The, the criminals of Gotham would kill him. So he has to have a perfect record. So basically, when you look at these other comparable athletes, how long can they go undefeated with a perfect record? And the answer came down to three years. So when you think about the time that it would take to develop the skills to be Batman, and then you would probably have a career of about three years, you realize that perfectionism can be a real hindrance. Oh, yeah. So, okay, so three years is the answer there. That's cool. Yeah. It's like good knowledge, good information to know there. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit because what I like about your book does kind of jump around and then you like tie it all together in a bow. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's really cool. Can grit be a game? Yeah. Does it I always think... have to be so serious? <laughs> no, I mean, the truth is, it's like we... I think that's a mistake that a lot of us make. I mean, I know I make it too, where we say, oh, God, it's so hard to stick to something. Oh, God, it's so hard to stick to something. Yet, you know, you never miss an episode of your favorite TV show. And you, when you get hooked on a, a game on your iPhone or a, a video game on Xbox or so, you know, that's never a problem to stick with through to the end. It's, it's great. So what's the difference there? And the difference is that games impose a structure on things, a structure that keeps you interested, keeps you hooked. You know, and if we take that same structure where there's feedback, there's goals, you know, and impose that structure on our other activities, which aren't immediately as pleasurable and fun, we can create a game in it that 
gives us the same kind of rewarding feeling and makes it much easier to persist. Awesome. And I use this example of this rock climber, right? Yeah. I mean, that's so dramatic, that story. I, I was like on the edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's this, it's this phenomenal story. If you watch the documentary, Touching the Void, based on his book, and it's a true story of uh, they were climbing in the Andes and they get all the way up to the top of the mountain. Nobody had ever climbed this cliff face before. And on the way down, which is actually where most accidents happen, shattered his leg. And at that height, you know, you're dead. You're just dead. And not only did he shatter his leg, but then to his partner, because they're tied together to save, to save his own life, had to cut the rope. And he falls into a crevasse with this shattered leg. And he's, you know, he's in horrible pain and he has to go miles to get back to the campsite to save his life. He manages to do it. And the way he does it is by focusing everything on a game, setting, giving himself time limits to reach certain markers. And it's an incredibly powerful, inspiring, moving story. But it illustrates just that framing things in terms of a game can keep you going in situations that seem impossible. Mm. I mean, I love that as someone who's prefer play a lot. I prefer not too good. I like intrinsically driven things that are they're purely intrinsically driven. Yeah, I, I'm totally down with that. And I and that was a really cool way of thinking of you can almost gamify any situation doesn't need to. We do have this dichotomy right between work and play that, that we don't need to have that false dichotomy. No, it's interesting. I interviewed for the blog, a Navy SEAL, an Army Ranger, Special Forces uh, officer. And what was funny is none of them knew each other. And they all, when I was talking to them all about the, and obviously the intense vetting process and training they go through, they all said the same thing. Every one of them said, how I got through it was by making it a game. It wasn't personal. It wasn't life or death, even though it certainly seemed like it at times. They made it a game. And that perspective just puts a different lens over what you're doing and turns it into something that's, like you said, a little more playful, a little bit more fun. And you build in that your personal reward system and you can get through really grueling things, far more grueling and intense than most of us ever deal with. Yeah. But you have dealt with a lot of it. You did your MFA. Does that mean you were an artist? I got a master's degree from UCLA Film School. Oh, film school. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So not not a real artist. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I didn't mean to say, I didn't mean to say that. That's obviously it. <laughs> So let's talk about this, you know, introversion, ambiversion, extroversion, uh, networking. Now, extroverts yeah. love networking. They just love it. <laughs> they can't get enough of it. And introverts would prefer not to have to do that. Now, is that okay if you prefer not to do that? Can you still succeed in life? What I found really fascinating was, you know, I have friends who are uber extroverts and, you know, they, they get on a plane for a few hours, they come off, they've made four or five friends. And that's amazing. And you look at the power of networks. And, you know, networking is essential. I mean, it's really important. And major, one of the studies I even cite shows that networking even benefits drug dealers. That the bigger, the larger their networks, the more successful their deals are, and the less likely they are to be incarcerated. You know, so when you look at the data, and then there's one study that shows when introverts pretend to be extroverts, they're happier. You know, and that on, in general, extroverts are happy. And I'm an introvert myself. So it's this is it was not was not pleasant reading all of this research. <laughs> but then you look, you know, it's like, what's the introvert superpower? And what was the I forget the specific I forget the specifics of the line. But basically, it was that the higher the level of extroversion is what inversely related to skill or blah, 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 where basically 
it was that the more it came down to the more extroverted you are, the, the worse you were at your job. And basically because introverts are spending less time with people, they have more time to gain skills, knowledge, accumulate it. And when you look at a range of studies, introverts are more successful in school. They are more likely, even athletes, you know, across the board, uh, skill acquisition, because they have those extra hours where they're not spending with people to get their Anders Ericsson 10,000 hours. Right. Does there need to be a trade-off, though, between having a uh, positive enthusiasm and assertiveness and still put in the time for deliberate practice? So you could still be an an extrovert and still put in that time, right? Oh, I mean, absolutely. And most people, you know, like you were saying, you know, introvert, extroversion, and ambiversion. You know, most people aren't. Are in the middle. Yeah. People fall into the middle. And, you know, so you can be, you know, if the extreme extroverts might have trouble, you know, sitting down for hours at a time every day and, you know, doing deliberate practice or something. Extreme introverts might, you know, have trouble you know, spending the time to network. But most people are going to just find a balance between the two. And if you schedule the time and dedicate yourself to finding a balance that works for you, yeah, I mean, you can claim benefits on both sides. I did a study on this that I wanted to tell you about. I was very curious about this similar issue. And I did an analysis of introversion, extroversion, and items relating specifically to solitary time, spent time alone, as well as enjoyment of solitary time. And I found that introversion, extroversion, just that one dimension without looking at other, because personality dimensions interact with each other. If you're an introvert, you were more likely to be alone, yeah. but you were no more likely than extroverts to actually get anything positive out of that alone time, like to, <laughs> to enjoy it or to, I mean, you could just like be alone and just like eat bonbons and watch yeah. and, and, and binge watch TV. So in my analysis, I actually found it was this intellectual curiosity and openness to experience dimension of personality that interacted with introversion in predicting things like utilizing that time more like the research, I think, suggests that if you just look at that one dimension without looking at interactions, introverts are no more likely to like spend more time in deliberate practice than extroverts. They are more likely to be alone. That yeah. is true. Yeah. So uh-huh. I just say that I hope that adds some nuance for you. You know. Oh, no, I would totally speculate. I'm totally speculating here. But I mean, I could totally see what you're saying. But do you think there could be a crowding out function where, you know, if you are spending more time socializing, you simply don't have those hours to spend on skill acquisition or other things versus you, you can certainly waste time alone. There's no doubt. But could there be a crowding out where... Yeah, if you're at college and you're going to every single party, you're simply not going to have as many hours to study. So, I mean, this is great we're having this conversation because, I mean, I don't know that, I don't know, you know not, no one knows the absolute truth and anything. But I think that what's interesting about this is that, like, extroversion is, like, gregariousness is just one small part of that. What you're doing is you're equating extroversion with one, with maybe two items on the extroversion questionnaire. Like, extroversion... Mm-hmm is a hodgepodge of things that seems to be related to how much reward sensitivity do you have? Like how much do you get excited, excited, stimulated by rewards in the environment? So maybe what you're saying is actually a good point that the more that you are like, ooh, sex, ooh, food, ooh, (laughs) networking opportunities, ooh, money, the more that you are kind of distracted by getting reward value from all those things. So I think there probably is a very big grain of truth in what you're saying. I'm, I'm trying to just think through all of the studies I know and see how that could make sense. And I, yeah, I think that could make sense. But I think that the extent to which you really, you know, utilize that time well, I think is going to be moderated by other variables. You know, God forbid I use the word talent. 
I mean, I feel like the word talent is like such a dirty word these days. Well, let's talk about talent. You know, you make a, a bold statement in the book. You say effort makes talent possible. Do you think that's 100% true? Oh, I mean, not totally. I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, it, it depends on the area. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about being in the, the NBA, you know, the height is going to be a strongly limiting factor. So, you know, merely more hours is, I don't think is going to, is going to make that possible. So you, you have those, you also have, you know, I know it's been debated, but because you, you, you've pursued a lot in the issue of IQ, the threshold effect, yeah. you know, in terms of that, that 120 sort of, I know Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi talks about that. But again, we found no threshold in the arts. We only found that there's something in the sciences in the sense that probabilistically, you find that IQ is related to scientific achievement, but there's no like hard and fast threshold. Like it's not like literally there are exceptions to there are always there are people who, but yeah, we've actually found in this study we published that in the arts though, there was just literally no zero threshold and zero even probabilistic with IQ. And we found that very interesting. I wasn't expecting that, but yeah. No, I mean, I, I wouldn't have expected no you know, no connection, but oh, you, at least at least above a hundred, or like if you don't have a brain, like if we take your brain out of your, <laughs> maybe like you won't be able those, to. Those people are hard to come by, and even harder to study. But I mean, I think you have that issue where certain you know limitations certainly, and you know, like you're saying in the sciences or or stuff like that, there may be you know variable sorts of thresholds where there are just certain characteristics or. I mean, it could even go out to personality traits where, you know, those can affect kind of how much capacity you might have in an arena. Yeah, I think that's very true. So tell me about SM046. Is it zero or... or uh, oh, oh, yeah. This was a story I originally heard on the podcast Invisibilia, which is fantastic. And this is the reason she does not have a name. This is a woman who, who basically feels no fear. And uh, her, due to a, uh, was it Urbach? It's a very rare brain disorder where basically the amygdala calcifies and it basically dies. And so she can feel all the other emotions, but she cannot feel fear. And again, it's one of those kind of things where you might think at first, oh my God, that'd be great. It'd be wonderful. I'd never feel afraid again. I'd go to the dentist. I wouldn't have to. And the truth is, it's actually in many ways a horrible curse because most of the things we do to protect ourselves are not deliberate, conscious thoughts. They are on a very emotional, instinctive level that we do to protect ourselves. And so she does things that are very dangerous. They took her to a pet store and she tried to touch the lethal snakes. And, you know, she lives in a really bad neighborhood and has put herself in situations where she's been assaulted. And these because she doesn't have that instinctive, uh oh, this is a bad idea kind of feeling that we all get. And that that really affects, you know, her life. And it's a fascinating story. That is fascinating. And when I was reading that, I was thinking to myself, oh, she sounds like the similar to like psychopaths don't have fear. But then you said that she actually is a really, really nice person. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think that's a consistent quality through it, but yeah, she is, you know, very nice, very agreeable, but literally the reason that she she is called SM, uh, you know, 046 uh, is not because of, she's in a science fiction movie. It's because if they release her name, she could totally be taken for granted. People could exploit her 
because she doesn't she doesn't feel fear and she really can't protect herself. Gosh, people can be so horrible, can't they? Oh, I mean, oh. that's totally terrible. I mean, well, like you're saying in the, the issue of Nice Guys Finish Last, I mean, you know, in, in short term exchanges and zero sum games, you know, bad guys do quite well. I mean, and it's a sad fact. And there was kind of an optimal level there of nice where you don't want to be too nice where you allow yourself to be exploited all the time. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, what you what you see is uh, when they did the prisoners dilemma, the iterated prisoners dilemma. It was Robert Axelrod in the nineteen eighties did the iterated prisoners dilemma. And they tried to create all these different algorithms to come up with the most successful strategy for the prisoners dilemma. And there were all kind. There were nice ones that always cooperated. There were evil ones that you know always uh, defected. Then there were ones that were more nuanced. Where there was one called Tester that would see how much it could get away with. And what they realized was the algorithm that did the best was a simple one from childhood we're all familiar with, which was tit for tat, which is all it did was it started out cooperating. And then all it did was replicate the other person's last move. So if you cooperated, it cooperated. If you defected, it defected. And tit for tat was amazingly successful. And what they found was they could actually make it a little bit better if they included more forgiveness so that it didn't create these death spirals of defection. But then there was another iteration they found, which was that they found that if somebody was being too nice and always cooperating, you could actually improve it by putting in a little bit of exploitation. And, you know, that's a little sad being too nice because one of Tit for Tat's strengths was it did retaliate. It didn't hold a grudge. But if you exploited it, it exploited you back, but then it immediately forgot and reset. <laughs> oh, it's so much easier being a computer. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's those the power of algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought that was really cool, though. So it did add a lot of new ones. So, you know, Adam Grant, Adam Grant's language, yeah. you know, not just being a matcher. It was different. You're kind of like a blend of things. You're adaptable. In a way. No, I mean, well, you know, it's matchers miss out because, you know, they're not proactive. They're always kind of waiting for an invitation to the party because they're going to match. Whereas <laughs> takers are out exploiting, givers are out doing favors. And getting, and getting exploited. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. And I mean, that's one of my favorite sections of Give and Take, you know, an amazing book is uh, where, he, where he talks about, you know, how not to be a martyr, you know, how not to get exploited and, and still be able to do good. And I think that that's a really important lesson for a lot of people. It is an important lesson. And also, I love that idea about forgiveness. I was so happy you included that. So let's talk a little bit about self-esteem because that's, you know, there can be pearls to self-esteem. Isn't that right? Well, yeah. What's really funny is that California did this had this big self-esteem initiative where they thought, oh, we're going to take kids and we're going to give them more confidence and they're going to feel better about themselves and they're going to succeed. And what they found was it didn't work. That self-esteem is largely a, a result, not a cause. And that what you usually end up doing is just increasing narcissism. And it's funny because I talk, like you're saying, the book, I try to balance everything, almost like a court case. You know, I give both sides of the story. And confidence is that, you know, the other side of the story never gets told. Nobody runs around trying to be less confident. Nobody says, how can I have less self-esteem? You know, nobody does that. But what you see is there are strengths to having less self-esteem and less confidence. It makes us more open to learning. It makes us more open to growing. If we think we know all the answers, we don't look for new answers. And what we find is when you look at all the research is that the paradigm in some ways can seriously be questioned just because, you know, confidence 
can lead to certainly lead to narcissism. It can lead to acting like a jerk, to loss of empathy, and to overconfidence. You know, I mean, when you look at Daniel Kahneman and others have talked about this extensively, and obviously lack of confidence, confidence is very powerful. Even if it helps you learn and grow, you know, it's in job interviews, you know, first dates. I mean, confidence has a huge impact on how, on how others see you. And what's interesting is if you look at Kristen Neff's research at University of Texas on self-compassion, and there's also some other research at Stanford on it, self-compassion could be a far better paradigm to work off of because instead of you know, self-esteem, where you feel like you constantly need to justify your level, which means either you're going to fail at some point and not justify your self-esteem, in which case you'll crash. And if you do, you just have to keep proving it, which keeps you on this treadmill, which is unpleasant. Uh, you need to slay a dragon every day to feel good about yourself. Self-compassion is saying that I'm human. I'm flawed. I make mistakes. And forgiving yourself, as opposed to running on this hamster wheel of trying to prove yourself worth every day. Yeah, the positive psychology class I teach at Penn. I wish you were an undergrad here. Uh, <laughs> uh, you could be my TA. <laughs> what do you say? I would love to take it. Yeah, I yeah, would... yeah. I think no, I think you would. I th I would uh, maybe come in and give a guest lecture though. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'd be... The students would die if Eric Barker came. You know? <laughs> I'm sure they're big fans of your blog. Their favorite lecture tends to be the self compassion lecture. There's something about students in college campuses today, I think, that just don't allow the permission, but they don't give themselves permission. Professors don't tend to give them permission to have self-compassion. So it's, it's huge. It's really huge. I'm really, I'm really glad you mentioned that in the book. So let's kind of wrap up talking about how to strike a good work-life balance. Yeah. Is such a thing possible? It's really tricky because what we see in the modern era, you know, in the past, you know, in, in many careers, the, the office doors closed at 5 p.m., you didn't have email, you know, decades ago where you could be reached at home. People didn't call you on your home phone. You didn't have a cell phone in your pocket 24-7 giving you emails, text messages, and work phone calls. So the issue is that the world used to build boundaries for you. Now, those boundaries have been lifted. We love the benefits. We love being able to order things from Amazon at 3 o'clock in the morning if we have to. That's fantastic, but it goes both ways. And so the thing you need to do is create boundaries for yourself, which, of course, is, is much more difficult. And we can find work-life balance, but it has to be by a personal definition of success. What are the limits that, that you have and that you're comfortable with in terms of the hours you want to devote to different areas of your life? And some of the things you see, that pe the mistakes people make in terms of work-life balance is some people use what's called a collapsing strategy where they, have, they only have one metric. For success, like money, I just make the number go up, make the number go up. And they don't think about their health. They don't think about their relationships. You know, they, they, they don't think about it, and they just money. And so they work too much. And hey, if you devote yourself, the money number will probably go up, but you're probably not going to end up very happy. Other people use what's called a sequencing strategy, which is another not good strategy where people will say, okay, for the first 10 years, I'm just going to focus on my career. And then for the next 10 years, I'm just going to focus on my family. And of course, that never works because life throws curveballs at us. And if you're for those first 10 years, if you do get married and have kids, you know, by the time you're into your family section, your kids don't know you, you know, so it's not that it's not that simple. But what you do see is, uh, was it Stevenson and Nash at Harvard uh, did some research where they found four categories, uh, four metrics that people can use to develop a decent work-life balance. And those were happiness, achievement, significance, and legacy. And happiness is, are you enjoying what you're doing? 
achievement is, you know, career goals. Are you getting ahead? Third was significance, which is, are you making a positive impact on the people you love, the people around you? And fourth was a legacy. Where are you, are you making the world a better place for you having been there? And if you look at the hours where you spend your time and you make sure that you're depositing a little bit in each one of those four categories, then you can make sure that you aren't going too much on achievement, too little on happiness, you know, or too much on happiness and not enough on achievement. You can try and start to build a balance that works for you. That's great. And then you also talk about the importance of getting a plan. Yeah. Is that right? Getting a plan? It's an issue there of, of again, building the system where, you know, it's like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to limit my email checking. I'm going to take for these hours, I'm not going to have the Facebook app on my phone. You know, building a structure whereby, you know, you in the same way that when you look at some of the research on, you know, willpower and stuff like that, the, the most powerful way to build willpower is just not to have to use willpower at all. Mm. is to is to build habits or to put yourself in a frame in a system where you can't cheat you can't do the wrong thing if you if you put hard limitations on yourself where you know I turn off my wi-fi at 8 p.m. well then I'm not going to be surfing the internet <laughs> at 10 p.m. <laughs> and so building kind of a plan and a structure for yourself is a superior way than having to grit your teeth and try and uh, uh, use willpower to limit yourself couldn't agree more. And I think Roy Balmester would agree with you too. He was, Absolutely. He was on a podcast recently. And he was fantastic. The two-parter was fantastic. Oh, you listened to my podcast? Oh, oh, oh yeah. No, that, that one was was great. I mean, hearing him talk, he covers so many different awesome subjects. I mean, willpower is only one of them. You guys covered a lot of territory. Yeah, he's, he's, I feel like all three of us would have a fun uh, dinner or something. He's the greatest. So look, I couldn't be more proud of you, man. I think uh, you should be very proud of yourself. This was a really a meaningful accomplishment you've done with this book, putting together so many studies in a way that, like, it makes sense. Like, I'm reading the, I've literally, the whole way through, I'm thinking, how's he going to, how's he going to put this together? How? And you did it. You really did it. So, huge congratulations. I want to ask, sort of like, because you run the risk, like, I know, like, the feeling. You put your heart and soul into something, right? And you kind of, you almost like don't even want to like look at it, like a certain topic. Like, like, like I bet there are some topics in here that you'd be happy like does yeah. not you know what i get it i get it like nice guys bad guys i get it i don't need to spend the rest of my life you know like reading those studies i'm, I'm, I'm done with that subject no more it's, it's finished i'm sure ar architects are just i never want to see that building but, again but am i right though like what are some um like what's next for eric after this i mean I want to see how everything goes with the book because of course, it's not even out yet as we speak. Yes. So I'm really curious to see how things go with that. But, you know, I definitely want to keep trying little bets and see what works. I mean, the, the book was a little bet for me and, you know, hopefully it pays off. But I mean, I'm endlessly fascinated by so much of the social psychology research and making it accessible and getting into people's hands. So, I mean, I just like the format of the book where you can actually do a deep dive because, I mean, my blog posts are pretty long, but they're certainly not as long as a book. So to, to be able to really, you know, go down the rabbit hole, you know, I, 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 think, I'll, I think I'll probably be writing more books in the future. Good. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to read your writing. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. And I wish you all the best with this. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com.
Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.